Chapter 16 of How to Succeed or Stepping Stones to Fame and Fortune. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How to Succeed or Stepping Stones to Fame and Fortune by Orison Sweat Marden. Chapter 16. Guard Your Weak Point. He that is slow to anger is better than mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Bible. The first and best of victories is for a man to conquer himself. To be conquered by himself is, of all things, the most shameful and vile. Plato. The worst education which teaches self-denial is better than the best which teaches everything else and not that. John Sterling. Most powerful is he who has himself in his own power. Seneca. The energy which issues in growth or assimilates knowledge must originate in self and be self-directed. Thomas J. Morgan. The foes with which they waged their strife were passion, self, and sin. The victories that laureled life were fought and won within. Edward H. Dewart. I'll sign it after a while, a drunkard would reply, when repeatedly urged by his wife to sign the pledge, but I don't like to break off at once. The best way is to get used to a thing. Very well, old man, said his wife. See if you don't fall into a hole one of these days with no one to help you out. Not long after, when intoxicated, he did fall into a shallow well, but his shouts for help were fortunately heard by his wife. Didn't I tell you so? It's lucky I was in hearing, or you might have drowned. He took hold of the bucket, and she tugged at the windlass. But when he was near the top, her grasp slipped, and down he went into the water again. This was repeated until he screamed, Look here! You're doing that on purpose. I know you are. Well, now I am, admitted the wife. Don't you remember telling me it's best to get used to a thing by degrees? I'm afraid if I bring you up sudden, you would not find it wholesome. Finding that his case was becoming desperate, he promised to sign the pledge at once. His wife raised him out immediately, but warned him that if ever he became intoxicated and fell into the well again, she would leave him there. A man captured a young tiger and resolved to make a pet of it. It grew up like a kitten, fond and gentle. There was no evidence of its savage, bloodthirsty nature, and it seemed perfectly harmless. But one day, while the master was playing with his pet, the rough tongue upon his hand started the blood from a scratch. The moment the beast tasted blood, his ferocious tiger nature was roused, and he rushed upon his master to tear him to pieces. Sometimes the appetite for drink, which was thought to be buried years ago, is roused by the taste or the smell of the devil in solution, and the wretched victim finds himself a helpless slave to the passion which he thought dead. When a young man... Hugh Miller once drank the two glasses of whiskey which fell to his share at the usual treat of drink of the Masons with whom he worked. On reaching home, he tried to read Bacon's Essays, his favorite book, but he could not distinguish the letters or comprehend the meaning. The condition into which I had brought myself was, I felt, one of degradation, said he. I had sunk by my own act for the time to a lower level of intelligence than that on which it was my privilege to be placed, and though the state could have been no very favorable one for forming a resolution, I in that hour determined that I should never again sacrifice my capacity of intellectual enjoyment to a drinking usage, and with God's help I was enabled to hold by the determination. 
In a certain manufacturing town, an employer one Saturday paid to his workmen $700 in crisp new bills that had been secretly marked. On Monday, $450 of those identical bills were deposited in the bank by the saloon keepers. When the fact was made known, the workmen were so startled by it that they helped to make the place a no-licensed town. The times would not be so hard for the workmen if the saloons did not take in so much of their wages. If they would organize a strike against the saloons, they would find the result to be better than an increase of wages and to include an increase of savings. How often we might read the following sign over the threshold of a youthful life. For sale, grand opportunities for a song, golden chances for beer, magnificent opportunities exchanged for a little sensual enjoyment, for exchange a beautiful home, devoted wife, lovely children, for drink. For sale, cheap, all the magnificent possibilities of a brilliant life, a competence for one chance in a thousand at the gambling table. For exchange, bright prospects, a brilliant outlook, a cultivated intelligence, a college education, a skilled hand, an observant eye, valuable experience, great tact, all exchanged for rum, for a muddled brain, a bewildered intellect, a shattered nervous system, poisoned blood, a diseased body, for fatty degeneration of the heart, for Bright's disease, for a drunkard's liver. With almost palsied hand at a temperance meeting, John B. Goff signed the pledge. For six days and nights in a wretched garret, without a mouthful of food, with scarcely a moment's sleep, he fought the fearful battle with appetite. Weak, famished, almost dying, he crawled into the sunlight, but he had conquered the demon which had almost killed him. Gough used to describe the struggles of a man who tried to leave off using tobacco. He threw away what he had, and said that was the end of it. But no, it was only the beginning of it. He would chew chamomile, gentian, toothpicks, but it was of no use. He bought another plug of tobacco and put it in his pocket. He wanted to chew awfully, but he looked at it and said, You are a weed, and I am a man. I'll master you if I die for it. And he did while carrying it in his pocket daily. There was an abbot that desired a piece of ground that lay conveniently for him. The owner refused to sell, yet with much persuasion he was contented to let it. The abbot hired it, and covenanted only to farm it for one crop. He had his bargain, and sowed it with acorns, a crop that lasted three hundred years. So Satan asks to get possession of our souls by asking us to permit some small sin to enter, some one wrong that seems of no great account. But when once he has entered, and planted the seeds, and beginnings of evil, he holds his ground. Teach self-denial and make its practice pleasurable, says Walter Scott, and you create for the world a destiny more sublime than ever issued from the brain of the wildest dreamer. Thomas A. Edison once asked why he was a total abstainer. He said, I thought I had a better use for my head. Byron could write poetry easily, for it was merely indulging his natural propensity. But to curb his temper, soothe his discontent, and control his animal appetites was a very different thing. At all events, it seemed so great to him that he never seriously attempted self-conquest. Let every youth who would not be shipwrecked on life's voyage cultivate this one great virtue, self-control. There is nothing so important to a youth starting out in life as a thoroughly trained and cultivated will. Everything depends upon it. If he has it, he will succeed. 
If he does not have it, he will fail. The first and best of victories, says Plato, is for a man to conquer himself. To be conquered by himself is, of all things, the most shameful and vile. Silence, says Zimmerman, is the safest response for all the contradiction that arises from impertinence, vulgarity, or envy. He is a fool who cannot be angry, says English, but he is a wise man who will not. Seneca, one of the greatest of the ancient philosophers, said that we should every night call ourselves to account. What infirmity have I mastered today? What passion opposed? What temptation resisted? What virtue acquired? And then he follows with the profound truth that our vices will abate of themselves if they be brought every day to the shrift. If you cannot at first control your anger, learn to control your tongue, which, like fire, is a good servant, but a hard master. It does no good to get angry. Some sins have a seeming compensation or apology, a present gratification of some sort, but anger has none. A man feels no better for it. It is really a torment, and when the storm of passion is cleared away, it leaves one to see that he has been a fool and he has made himself a fool in the eyes of others, too. The wife of Socrates, Xantippe, was a woman of a most fantastical and furious spirit. At one time, having vented all the reproaches upon Socrates her fury could suggest, he went out and sat before the door. His calm and unconcerned behavior but irritated her so much the more, and, in the excess of her rage, she ran upstairs and emptied a vessel upon his head, at which he only laughed and said that so much thunder must needs produce a shower. Alcibiades, his friend, talked with him about his wife, told him he wondered how he could bear such an everlasting scold in the same house with him. He replied, I have so accustomed myself to expect it that it now offends me no more than the noise of carriages in the street. It is said of Socrates that whether he was teaching the rules of an exact morality, whether he was answering his corrupt judges, or was receiving sentence of death, or swallowing the poison, he was still the same man, that is to say, calm, quiet, undisturbed, intrepid, in a word, wise to the last. It is not enough to have great qualities, says La Rochefoucauld. We should also have the management of them. No man can call himself educated until every voluntary muscle obeys his will. You ask whether it would not be manly to resent a great injury, said Erdley Wilmot. I answer that it would be manly to resent it, but it would be godlike to forgive it. He who, with strong passions, remains chaste, he who, keenly sensitive, with manly power of indignation in him, can be provoked, and yet restrain himself and forgive, these are strong men, the spiritual heroes. To feel provoked or exasperated at a trifle, when the nerves are exhausted, is perhaps natural to us in our imperfect state. But why put into the shape of speech the annoyance which, once uttered, is remembered, which may burn like a blistering wound or rankle like a poisoned arrow? If a child be crying or a friend capricious or a servant unreasonable, be careful what you say. Do not speak while you feel the impulse of anger, for you will be almost certain to say too much, to say more than your cooler judgment will approve, and to speak in a way that you will regret. Be silent until the sweet by-and-by, when you will be calm, rested, and self-controlled. But self-respect must be accompanied by self-conquest, or our strong feelings may prove but runaway horses. 
he who would command others must first learn to obey and he who would command his own powers must learn to be submissive to the still small voice within discipline the passions curb pride and impatience restrain all hasty impulses deny yourself the gratification of any desire not sanctioned by reason shame and its consequent degradation follow the loss of our own good opinion rather than the esteem of others too many yield in the perpetual conflict between temptation to gratify the coarser appetites and aspiration for the good the true and the beautiful voices unheard by those around us whisper don't but too often self-respect is lost the will lies prostrate and the debauch goes on such battles must be fought by all be ours the victory born of self-control aided by that heaven which always helps him who prays while putting his own shoulder to the wheel no man had a better heart or more thoroughly hated oppression than edmund burke he possessed neither experience in affairs nor a tranquil judgment nor the rule over his own spirit so that his genius under the impulse of his bewildering passions wrought much evil to his country and to europe even while he rendered noble service to the cause of commercial freedom, to Ireland and to America. Burns could not resist the temptation to utter his clever sarcasms at another's expense. And one of his biographers had said that he made a hundred enemies for every ten jokes he made. But Burns could no more control his appetite than his tongue. Thus thoughtless follies laid him low and stained his name. Xantus, the philosopher, told his servant that on the morrow he was going to have some friends to dine, and asked him to get the best thing he could find in the market. The philosopher and his guests sat down the next day at the table. They had nothing but tongue, four or five courses of tongue, tongue cooked in this way and tongue cooked in that way, and the philosopher lost his patience and said to his servant, Didn't I tell you to get the best thing in the market? he said. I did get the best thing in the market. Isn't the tongue the organ of sociality, the organ of eloquence, the organ of kindness, the organ of worship? Then Zantos said, Tomorrow I want you to get the worst thing in the market. And on the morrow the philosopher sat at the table, and there was nothing there but tongue. Four or five courses of tongue, tongue in this shape and tongue in that shape. And the philosopher again lost his patience and said, Didn't I tell you to get the worst thing in the market? The servant replied, I did, for isn't the tongue the organ of blasphemy, the organ of defamation, the organ of lying? I can reform my people, said Peter the Great, but I cannot reform myself. He forbade all Russians to wear beards, and to quell the insurrection which resulted. He had eight thousand revolters beheaded. With a hatchet he began the ghastly work. He had his own son beheaded. He who cannot resist temptation is not a man. He is wanting in the highest attributes of humanity. The honor and nobleness of the old knight-errantry consisted in defending the innocence of men and protecting the chastity of women against the assaults of others. But the true and nobler knighthood protects the property and the character, the innocence and the chastity of others against one's self. We should all be posted upon our weak points, for after all there are many emergencies in life when these weak points, not our strong ones, will measure our manhood and our strength. Many a woman whom a mouse would frighten out of her wits would not shrink from assisting in terrible surgical operations in our city or war hospitals, 
and many an officer and soldier who would walk up to the cannon's mouth without a tremor in battle would not dare to say his soul was his own in a society parlor. Many a great statesman has quailed before the ringer of scorn of a fellow congressman, and has been completely cowed by a hiss from the gallery or a ridiculing paragraph in a newspaper. We all have tender spots, weak spots, and a man can never know his strength who does not study his weaknesses. Violent passions and ardent feelings are seldom found united with complete self-command. But when they are, they form the strongest possible character. For there is all the power of clear thought and cool judgment impelled by the resistless energy of feeling. This combination Washington possessed. For in his impetuosity there was no foolish rashness, and in his passion no injustice. Besides, whatever violence there might be within, the explosion seldom came to the surface, and when it did it was arrested at once by the stern mandate of his will. He never lost the mastery of himself in any emergency, and in ruling his spirit showed himself greater than in taking a city. It is one of the astonishing things in his life that, amid the perfect chaos of feeling into which he was thrown, amid the distracted counsels and still more distracted affairs that surrounded him, he never once lost the perfect equilibrium of his own mind. The contagion of fear and doubt and despair could not touch him. He did not seem susceptible to the common influences which affect men. His soul, poised on its own center, reposed calmly there through all the storms that beat for seven years on his noble breast. The ingratitude and folly of those who should have been his allies, the insults of his foes, and the frowns of fortune never provoked him into a rash act, or deluded him into a single error. Horace Mann says that there must be a time when the vista of the future, with all its possibilities of glory and of shame, first opens to the vision of youth. Then he is summoned to make his choice between truth and treachery, between honor and dishonor, between purity and profligacy, between moral life and moral death. And as he doubts or balances between the heavenward or hellward course, as he struggles to rise or consents to fall, is there in all the universe of God a spectacle of higher exaltation or of deeper pathos? Within him are the appetites of a brute and the attributes of an angel, and when these meet in council to make up the role of his destiny and seal his fate, shall the beast hound out the seraph? Shall the young man, now conscious of the largeness of his fear and of the sovereignty of his choice, wed the low ambitions of the world and seek, with their emptiness, to fill his immortal desires? Because he has a few animal wants that must be supplied, shall he become all animal, epicure and an inebriate? and blasphemously make it the first doctrine of his catechism, the chief end of man, to glorify his stomach and enjoy it? Because it is the law of self-preservation that he shall provide for himself, and the law of religion that he shall provide for his family, when he has one, must he, therefore, cut away all the bonds of humanity that bind him to his race, forswear charity, crush down every prompting of benevolence, and if he can have the palace of equipage of the prince and the table of a sybarite, become a blind man and a deaf man and a dumb man when he walks the streets where hunger moans and nakedness shivers. The strong man is the one who ever keeps himself under strict discipline, who never once allows the lower to usurp the place of the higher in him, who makes his passions his servants and never allows them to be his master who is ever led by his mind and not by his inclinations. 
He drills and disciplines his desires, and keeps the roots of his life underground, and never allows them to interfere with his character. He is never the slave of his inclinations, nor the sport of impulse. He is the commander of himself, and heads his ship due north even in the wildest tempests of passion. He is never the slave of his strongest desire. A noted teacher has said that the propensities and habits are as teachable as Latin and Greek, while they are infinitely more essential to happiness. We are very largely the creatures of our wills. By constantly looking on the bright side of things, by viewing everything hopefully, by setting the face as a flint every hour of every day toward all that is harmonious and beautiful in life, and refusing to listen to the discord or to look at the ugly side of life, by constantly directing the thought toward what is noble, grand, and true, we can soon form habits which will develop into a beautiful character, a harmonious and well-rounded life. We are creatures of habit, and by knowing the laws of its formation we can, in a little while, build up a network of habit about us, which will protect us from most of the ugly, selfish, and degrading things of life. In fact, the only real happiness and unalloyed satisfaction we get out of life is the product of self-control. It is the great guardian of all the virtues, without which none of them is safe. It is the sentinel, which stands on guard at the door of life, to admit friends and exclude enemies. I call that mind free, says Channing, which jealously guards its intellectual rights and powers, which calls no man master, which does not content itself with a passive or hereditary faith, which opens itself to light whencesoever it may come, which receives new truth as an angel from heaven, which, whilst consulting others, inquires still more of the oracle within itself and uses instruction from abroad not to supersede, but to quicken and exalt its own energies. I call that mind free, which is not passively framed by outward circumstances, which is not swept away by the torrent of events, which is not the creature of accidental impulse, but which bends events to its own improvement, and acts from an inward spring, from immutable principles which it has deliberately espoused, I call that mind free, which protects itself against the usurpations of society, which does not cower to human opinion, which feels itself accountable to a higher tribunal than man's, which respects a higher law than fashion, which respects itself too much to be the slave or tool of the many or the few. I call that mind free, which, through confidence in God and in the power of virtue, has cast off all fear but that of wrongdoing which no menace or peril can enthrall, which is calm in the midst of tumults, and possesses itself, though all else be lost. I call that mind free, which resists the bondage of habit, which does not mechanically repeat itself and copy the past, which does not live on its old virtues, which does not enslave itself to precise rules, but which forgets what is behind, listens for new and higher munitions of conscience, and rejoices to pour itself forth in fresh and higher exertions. I call that mind free which is jealous of its own freedom, which guards itself from being merged in others, which guards its empire over itself as nobler than the empire of the world. End of chapter 16 Recording by Lee Smalley